Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, I, I'll tell you something. Thank you, Conrad. Listening to Andy talk about his love of Vegemite, there's a, uh, a chef friend of mine uh, in Montreal, Derek Damon. And Derek, uh, one of his signature dishes, I, I think it's actually the, on the cover of his last cookbook, is uh, uh, broiled oysters. And he basically beats Vegemite into a, a homemade mayonnaise. And he puts some breadcrumbs and some vegetables and stuff on top of the oysters and then shellacks them flat in the shell with this Vegemite mayonnaise and puts it underneath the broiler uh, and they puff up. It is the most extraordinary thing in that, that yeasty, sourdough, toasty, burnt, fetid, slightly ammoniated, fantastic thing that Vegemite is so delicious uh, for, just comes sailing through, perfect with the oysters. So you got it. Now he's got me thinking about Derek's oysters. Jesus, I'm hungry. <laughs> so I travel. This is a terrible idea. I travel a lot and I try a lot of food, but I feel like every time I talk to you or hear you talk on TV, I learn about a new food that I had no idea existed. And well, it's very kind somewhere. of you. So very kind of you. Look, I, I know you're not afraid to use food as a gateway to discuss some of the most important and most controversial topics in our society. And that's the reason I love your work and perspective so much. So I'd love to kick things off with, a, uh, with perhaps one of the most controversial topics and probably one of the most heated debates that we've had in the Trip Scout Nation travel community. And sorry to, sorry to start this off with such a tough question, but if you could go to any three cities in the world for dinner with a budget of $5, $50, and $500, so one city for each price range, which city would you pick for each? Uh, $500 uh, Paris, but it's probably not enough. Uh, but let's just assume for the sake of the argument that it is. Uh, $50 uh, Queens, New York. Um, and uh, $5, uh, I'll go uh, Hanoi, Vietnam. Hanoi and Paris are two of my answers as well. The 51 is the probably the hardest one to See, to I, th that to me was the, the, the gimme because I, I can go and have a – a meal that that gives me a food boner as big as the one that I get in Paris spending $500 for $50, whether it's in, you know, flushing at one of my favorite little Sichuan dumpling houses or all at the, you know, at the far end of the borough at a Liberian seafood house with chilies that are so hot, they'll, you know, take the paint off your car. So it, it's a very easy place to eat well for $50. You get a $200 experience for 50 bucks in Queens, New York. Well, which is a perfect segue to my next question. So the restaurant industry is sadly one of the industries hit hardest by this pandemic. And sadly, many won't ever reopen. So this is something, you know, this is an most, industry. Most won't. Wow. So this is hate obviously- to, Hate to bum yeah. you out, but I mean, this is, this is the, the, the Titanic issue of our time right now is the food supply chain, where the food comes in into grocery stores, schools, hospitals, restaurants, right? Where is food being cooked, homes? And then what the throughput is out on the other side, what the economic implications are for every place that we're cooking food uh, on the chain. And I would argue the place where we're seeing the most disruption is in restaurants. Mm -hmm. The long amount of healing time is gonna be restaurants. And it is, of all of those groups, uh, I think it's the place that is, is going to be changed for the longest. So what can we do right now uh, to support our local restaurant industry during these times? Uh, get on the phone and call Congress. We, the independent restaurant uh, community will disappear, maybe 80%, 90%. Uh, well, I mean, Chris Shepard in Houston thinks 90% won't come back. I was on a phone call with several industry leaders this morning at lunchtime. Again, I just, I was late to our pre-chat because there were eight or nine of us who were part of a committee on a national organization uh, doing some more planning and talking about this. Um, and and I, I think the number is probably somewhere between 80 and 60% won't wow. reopen uh, currently. However, if we fix the payroll protection plan and if we enact a $250 billion stabilization package 
for small independent restaurants that will pay their rent for a couple of months, put some money in escrow. So when they do open and can bring employees back, they have some operating capital. If we do that, we might save the majority of them. And the economic impact on this, I mean, restaurants alone, independent restaurants alone are a trillion dollar industry. However, they are a multi-trillion dollar industry when you fold in all of the travel. I mean, you know, this group is right. very representative. I don't need to tell anyone on this chat that we eat to, tra uh, eat to travel and travel to eat, right? I, I, I'm in Minneapolis right now at my office. I, I don't fly to Paris to go to Panera Bread, right? I don't fly to Seattle to go to Whataburger, right? I mean, it's just that's not on my radar screen. The amount of ancillary dollars that flow through and into the restaurant community. And by the way, every dollar into the restaurant industry is about $2.90 out in terms of economic impact, um, is, makes it the industry most worth saving. And remember, we have 15 million employees in the restaurant industry in America alone, which makes us second only to the Defense Department in terms of most Americans employed. Those people were the largest employer of single mothers, uh, largest first-time job uh, hirers that are out there, uh, number one employer of returning citizens from jails and institutions, plus we're a beloved cultural uh, totem. I mean, you know, I, I don't know about you. you. You can have my quadratic equation. I really don't give a shit about math that much, and I can't change math. Math is invincible. Math is constant. Uh, you know, take away rice and bread, and that's the stuff revolutions are made of. I, I can't think of a more important thing than calling your governors, legislators, any elected official that you can, send an email, send a note. You can do it by going to uh, saverestaurants.com, which is the IRC's um, uh, website, saverestaurants.com. You can click on a little locator, and it'll find your representatives, and you can actually email them from them and say, I want to save restaurants support the IRC. I mean, we'll do it all for you. But if we don't do that, we are going to see a titanic change in how we deal, uh, in, in what the American restaurant scene looks like. Fascinatingly, I just saw something about 15 minutes before we hopped on. Uh, our farms are failing as well because we have failed. Uh, we've stopped taking care of those people, the people who are actually like picking the fields, harvesting our crops, you know, cutting pork on our factories, right? Number one hotspot in America right now is at the Smithfield plant in South Dakota where they have 680 people sick with uh, coronavirus uh, out of like 800 in the whole state. I mean, it's absurd. Um, but in France, they are supporting all restaurants. Lots of countries are. Uh, they're not just giving $25 million bailouts to uh, big giant chains, which is fucking insult to me. It makes me so angry. But more importantly, uh, the country of France is mobilizing to help the French farmers both get product into the field in the south of the country, pull product out, drive it, truck it, distribute it, right? The big problem in our country is that nobody wants to do that job. And that's a shame because those are skilled workers who have been supporting us. In our country, we demonize immigrants. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. And we have created an underclass of people who we now are deeming as essential workers. And my big fear is that when they go down, we're not going to be able to get in there fast enough. We'll be able to distribute. Did you see those pictures in Immokalee, Florida the other day of all the, the piles of you know green uh, zucchini and yeah. all the rest of that? Um, it was awful. But the fact of the matter is as awful as it was to see that, those same plants will flower and grow more zucchini. The spring season is moving north. We're gonna be, we're going to have enough food in our system. The problem is we can't replace the people in the system. And if we can't replace the people, then the food is going to not get uh, to the stores. It's not gonna get to the community resource kitchens. It's not gonna get to the grocers and the soup kitchens. And when that happens, that's when you have social unrest. I am absolutely convinced that this food thing is going to get our problems now are going to get worse before they get better. And we have to mobilize. Everyone has to talk to their elected officials. We really do have a voice. They really do listen. 
and we have to make sure that our, as food lovers, as travel lovers, as people who believe that that kind of culture is important, we need to have our voice listened to. That is great advice. And we'll absolutely share, share those links and how to, how to let your voice be heard. Um, and it's also no surprise that the French uh, politicians are uh, taking a more intelligent view on their food industry uh, than the American politicians. What do you think, I mean, you touched on, I think the economic impact and the, the, the job impact on the single mothers and the immigrants and the, some of the most vulnerable, uh, that is a little bit easier to wrap your head around. And I think most people can comprehend that. You touched on the cultural impact of having the majority of restaurants shut down. What would that look like if the majority of restaurants shut down and then, you know, economically, uh, from a health pandemic perspective, like things start to return back to normal, but we had this period of time where all of the, the food institutions and cultural institutions around food had been shut down. What, what would that look like going forward? I think it would be a traumatic event. I think we're enduring a traumatic event right now, a global traumatic event. Um, people have to remember that this kind of anxiety, ambiguity and uncertainty if you talk to any therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, I'm sure there's some listening, qualifies as major league trauma. People are losing their jobs. They don't know. I mean, 24% of Americans didn't, we were food insecure, didn't know where tomorrow's meals were coming from. That number is about doubled right now. We've all seen the lines at that uh, 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 kitchen outside of a community resource kitchen in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. Something like 7,000 cars people waiting to get food. Um, it is, we are having a staggering food crisis right now, underreported because there's so much other stuff going on. The stories that will come out of this, of people and families, you know, last year at this time, there were certainly plenty of stories about double income families that still had to make a decision about whether or not they were gonna buy groceries or medicine for grandma. Imagine what that number is now. Right. Staggering. I think that one of the places that we get release in life, where we gather untold amounts of joy, where we go to heal together communally by gathering, uh, it's no longer, this isn't medieval times. This isn't Saturday mornings at the town market and someone you know, ends up being a duel and everyone goes home. Uh, it's restaurants. Restaurants is where we have been celebrating life for the last 25, 30 years in this country. When I was growing up, we still did a lot of that at home. You know, I'm 58. The, in the last two decades, it's been restaurants. The youngest group of spenders out there, uh, people in their uh, 20s, are those millennials? Yes. Yeah, the millennials. So. Uh, the, I saw a statistic the other day from a Pew uh, Research Institute uh, poll uh, the majority of millennials uh, still prefer to go out even with less money and spend less, but still sit in restaurants, right? It's the restaurants have never been more popular. Um, so I think when you take that away, you take away a gathering point, you take away a place where we're rooted in society, but most importantly, you take a play away a place where we learn about other cultures and other people as Americans despite the fact that we're a nation of immigrants, we learn about other cultures first by inhaling them through our mouths. We love, you know, Mexican food and Ethiopian food and all the rest of that. Mexican art and music, Ethiopian art and music, hopefully if you like the food, you investigate that. Um, some like it, some don't. The, the horrifying shame is that we, the jury is out in America on the people. And we have a, uh, a national leadership vacuum uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, when it comes to a lack of empathy and understanding for the foundational elements of our country being about immigrants, that we are a globalist society, whether we like it or not. Isolationism does not work. Can you imagine taking away one of the few places that we can take our children to learn about other cultures that they absolutely go bonkers. But when my kid was five or six, I take him to restaurants, you know, and we start talking about, you know, Aztec culture because we're eating, you know, ground, you know, ground pumpkin seed mole uh, at a Mexican restaurant. And I can start talking to him about Aztec culture and he's fascinated. 
by it. You know, I mean, this is food. We, it, we flow through it. It is food and human existence is inseparable. 100%. Food is absolutely the gateway. I mean, it's a lot harder to discriminate or go to war with someone after you've broken bread with them. And 1,000, 1,000 percent. And, and it is, there's not a story of importance in America today that you can't tell through food. I mean, that's, that's how I uh, started, you know, creating the series, What's Eating America, my newest vehicle on MSNBC, uh, because I felt we were finally at this point in our food movement where we were ready for more serious stories. I did not know that this pandemic would come and it would, you know, amplify that message by a factor of about 700. Um, but yeah, it is, it, it is so easy to tell stories that people can connect to, relate to, understand, appreciate when you do it about food. Yeah. Well, with, you know, as, as unfortunate that as that is, and we should all do our part, like you said, to take those actions. Um, I guess one silver lining within that that I've seen is how many people are leaning into cooking at home in a much more intentional way. Yep. And we see it in our community, how cooking has been a temporary replacement for travel. So if someone is just starting out for, and wants to, yeah, go ahead. I would just caution you. Remember, there's, there's technically three food Americas, but let's just, the lines are blurry between two of the mm -hmm. three. There are two food Americas. There's the food America where those of us have the choice to cook at home. And there's the food America where uh, people are cooking at home, but because of their economic status, access and the inequities of our social system, they do not have choices about what they're eating and oftentimes are eating empty calories and stuff. Um, so I want us all to be aware how lucky and blessed we are to be having this conversation about food. Cause you're right. There is a large section of America for whom people, I mean, look, Mark Bittman, Michael Pollan, a whole bunch of, you know, really wonderful people who I think the world of have been saying, we need to cook more at home. We're missing that. I've been saying that for a decade, right? Yeah. Now we're doing it. We're seeing the value in that. It's actually one, it's, it's, it's actually 10 less restaurant visits we're going to make a year when we come out of here, even if they all opened up again, because we're realizing we need to be staying at home more and cooking more. And is that a benefit? Yes. What I hope it does is I hope it underscores for all the people that can afford to do it, how many people can't, and we actually make an equitable food system for all Americans, not just some. We all win when we all win. It's not about those that can, it's about all of us together. And I know that you weren't trying to make that distinction purposely. I just wanna make sure that everyone who's listening understands how vitally important it is that we create an equitable food. The real opportunity here is that it would have been nice with all the fragility and brittleness and mistakes in our food system for the last 20, 30, 40 years, whether it's farming, restaurants, I mean, they were all had a shitload of problems and were non-functioning and inequitable systems in many ways, as fun as they were to go to. It would have been nice if we were able to take apart our house brick by brick and build it back together, but someone, you know, burnt the burnt it the fuck to the ground. I mean, it's awful. So what is really, really important is that we are very mindful as we reconstruct and rebuild our food communities, that we do so with an eye for fixing the inequalities that had existed in them for the last 20 years. Yeah, well, I want to double tap into that. Let's skip the, the current question. But what, you're absolutely right. We have, you know, one aspect of society has had, you know- Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, there's no All rules right. here. Yeah. Okay. One, so there was one, a knock at the door and there's uniforms and <laughs> one aspect of society has had, and I'm very cognizant as in our community, as we talk about travel, I think this is, uh, this is very core. Like there are people, there are the haves and there are the have nots. And so from one aspect of our culture and exactly what was the, you know, in the beginning of our question is like, there is a food renaissance going on, but it, it amazes me how America, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, is suffering from such a food crisis like you talked about. Like nutrition is at the height of nearly every healthcare problem we have from obesity, diabetes, heart disease. Um, it touches, it's one of the largest aspects of our economy, one of the largest aspects of culture like you talked about. Um, and uh, I think poor nutrition is also one of the reasons that 
you know, so many kids can't get a proper education because they're going to class hungry. And, yet, why more, and why more people will die from C-19. I mean, remember this yes. comorbidity issue. Um, there are a lot of people uh, with a gym membership and eating well who are, you know, recovering from this disease. And the people who are dying from this thing, I'm talking about the ones in their 50s or 60s, and the stats are just coming in, just coming in. But physician, emergency room physician friends of mine in New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Chicago, Los Angeles, who I'm checking in with on this, are telling me that the comorbidity issues are contributing to some of the deaths we're seeing from C-19. It's a respiratory failure. Your lungs fill with water, right? They develop these lesions in them and they just stop functioning. Your ability to fight that off is a cardio is a function of cardiopulmonary health. So if you're suffering from food-related cardiopulmonary illnesses, if you're suffering from diabetes, these food-related illnesses, if you're obese, it is harder to recover. Why is it okay to pull someone over for not having a seatbelt on? Why is it okay for putting a warning label on cigarettes, rightfully so, by the way, in both cases, that says these will kill you, don't smoke them, right? Still America. You want to not wear your seatbelt? Fine, but we're going to give you a lot of tickets and then your car is going to get taken away. Cigarettes, we're going to put these warnings on them and we're going to make it so that your kids tell you, mommy, daddy, why are you smoking, right? Why is it okay to be feeding kids you know, a Mountain Dew and a bunch of ho-hos as a breakfast in the morning. And if God forbid you say something to somebody, they're going to sit there and go, mind your own business. I'm sorry. That's, that, is, that is child abuse. Um, what we know about health and what we know about what that Mountain Dew and those ho-hos or bowl of sugary cereal or whatever it is, cinnamon roll, two donuts, whatever you want to call it, an unhealthy breakfast, right? That includes sugary soda. And I will tell you right now, it also includes that sugary chocolate milk that's served in schools. It is criminal to be doing that to our kids. And we are seeing the effects that it has on our culture. The, if we fix food, we can fix so much in this country. And from an economic standpoint, it's not, can we afford to do it? We can't afford not to. We're struggling to find $250 billion to bail out the independent restaurants as a fourth tranche now that the third one has run out. I mean, my God, we're spending $1.4 trillion on fighting those four uh, food-related uh, illnesses. What would happen if we had made a dent in it of about a third over the last 20 years? And we were only, uh, and we had saved $600 billion. So why isn't this something why, why that is it? Why is it that we, we can, we have an army and, and arms and, you know, and, and by the way, I am, I, I believe in a healthy military uh, I'm actually more of a conservative than most people think. Um, but why is it that we have enough bombs to blow up the world a thousand times over, but we can't feed every child in America? That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Huh. This disease has held up a mirror to our inaction of the last 40 years, whether it's immigration reform, whether it's uh, health and wellness and food, it, 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 whether it's, you know, uh, addiction issues, climate change, you name it, this pandemic is showing where all of our warts are. And the missed opportunity will be if we don't heed the, pay attention to what's going on and take care of it moving forward. Doing the same thing again, over and over again, expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. You're absolutely right. Love it. So let me ask you, we just finished a ton of democratic presidential debates and we're going into a presidential debate. How come this isn't something that you hear talked about often? Oh, it's like you read my mind. Um, when I pitched What's Eating America, one of the things that I said to the folks at MSNBC was that I had tracked this over the last three elections, three election cycles, six years. Nobody was bringing up actual kitchen table issues. People, politicians always say, okay, I'm going to talk about kitchen table issues. And they would start talking about things like jobs and things that are talked about around the kitchen table. I actually want to talk about real kitchen table issues, the cost of food, health and wellness, uh, why we can't feed all Americans in the most sophisticated and richest culture and society in the history of the universe. We can't feed our children. 
That should be where it starts. Why are we giving the people who need the warm hug that food gives the most, which by the way, is not me. I've gotten enough warm hugs from food. If they retired my number and I just ate, you know, drank Soylent for the rest of my life, I'd still be ahead of anyone else. It's kids, it's people in prisons, it's seniors in, in healthcare facilities, it's hospital food. Those are the people that actually need the best food that we have, right? And it goes hand in hand with decentralizing our system and supporting local farmers. It is the biggest issue of our times and we have started just this year hearing some people talking about it. Uh, Amy Klobuchar was talking about it. Elizabeth Warren was talking about it. Uh, Joe Biden mentioned it. Uh, Mayor Pete mentioned it, uh, but it's getting talked about. Um, uh, and this is not, I'm not patting myself on the back when I say it, but the, you, I could tell there was a change when I went on the Bill Maher show three, four weeks ago. He wanted to talk about food issues. First time that's happened. Now I've been invited a couple of times and gotten bumped in fairness to him. He's been wanting to do that for about a year. But the fact of the matter is there is now a national appetite for serious food stories. What's Eating America is one of the highest rated shows to premiere on MSNBC in years. The ratings were off the charts. That's fantastic. That tells me people are ready for this conversation. And the fact that people are ready for it means that our politicians are going to start asking about, uh, talking about it. But more so, it's, it's, it's our responsibility to start talking to them about it and to make sure to be raising our hand and make sure to let them know that hunger in America, that food-related diseases, that climate change and all that, that those are important issues to us and, they, and we can give our examples through food. It's all about food. Absolutely, food touches it all. Um, yeah. So, so to circle back, um, so for those people, especially in this community and on this call that yep. are trying to be you know, more intentional about cooking at home. Sure. And who, who, you know, maybe are just starting out and they don't want to cook as a profession, but just as a way to create more interesting meals for themselves and the, the people they love. What advice would you have for them? Uh, write down the five favorite foods, types of foods that you like to eat. This is a group of people who love to travel, right? I mean, this is a, yep. the shared passion we have is food and travel for all, all vast majority of people on this call. So I tell people all the time, if you love Japanese food, then invest in, you know, a tamago skillet and a sukiyaki pot and, you know, a, uh, you know, some clay earthenware uh, to cook in and download some Japanese recipes and look at some on YouTube and uh, go to the local Asian market and buy the staples and start cooking the things that interest you the most that you don't know how to make. Because that's the stuff that has the greatest chance of sticking, right? I had a friend who really doesn't care for pa uh, paella. He, he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't like one of the ingredients, it's just the whole thing just is, he doesn't like it. Right. Uh, and I, we went to his house a couple months ago and he made paella for us. And you know, I said to him, I said, Bob, I said, what, what the fuck is wrong? What's up with the paella? And he's like, oh, I got a pan from some, you know, someone had given him a Christmas gift with the pound of bumba rice and the paella pan and the recipe and all the rest of that. And he was dying to do it. And he said, I'm never doing it again. And I, as I went home, I thought to myself, well, this is why my advice of cook what you like is so important. If you love going, if you go out to dim sum every weekend and you love dumplings and egg, then that whole style of cooking, you know, go download some recipes and make some. It's dumpling skins. You can make them from flour and water to start. It's a ground meat. It's ginger and, I mean, it's so simple, right? You can right. do them as pot stickers. You can bake them. You can broil them. You can, you know, boil them. I mean, it's like start, start with what you love and move out from there. It's the best piece of advice I can give you. And, oh, and practice. No one wants to practice cooking. It drives me crazy. Do you golf? No. So I have, I don't golf either. I have friends who golf. They're always going to the driving range all winter long. It's snow on the ground here in Minnesota. They, they putt at home hundred times a day so that their bad habits don't come back in the off season and they can hit the, the, uh, the regular season uh, without having to sort of uh, 
spend too much time getting their game back up. And that's so smart. People who, who are casual cooks should be chopping a couple carrots and a couple onions every day for a month and then bag them and throw them in the freezer. And then you can make a wonderful carrot soup at the end of it. But if you're not practicing your knife skills, cooking's going to be a drudgery. You're not going to move quickly through recipes. Cut carrots and onions, improve your knife skills, keep your knife sharp. Those little things are going to actually spur your love and your learning to untold heights. I love that. So you, we obviously covered a lot of the issues with food in America and, and globally. Um, but I think there's a lot of issues going on with travel um, that I wanted to get your perspective on too. So travel sure. has changed a lot since you, you, know, you started traveling. And it's certainly more accessible, which is great. But that has also led to issues like over-tourism and flash tourism. Uh, but destinations and travelers have never really had a worldwide opportunity to just hit the pause button and reset like we have the opportunity to do now. Mm -hmm. So when we do eventually return to travel, what are your hopes and what is your advice to, to make sure we get it right so we can both get the most out of our own experience uh, and also preserve it for what we love about travel for generations to come? I feel a little bit like I'm preaching to the converted here, but I would hope that this group would take out one message to the rest of the world. Travel is not about the restaurants. It's not about the museums. It's not about the fancy beaches. It's not about the really swanky hotel rooms. Uh, travel is about other people who live in other cultures. It's yep. about learning. We learn when we're on the road in the most profound ways possible. As a matter of fact, it's our greatest opportunity for learning is when we travel. When we're traveling, we take risks that we otherwise would never take before. We try to speak a new language. We're actually extra empathetic. We're extra patient and understanding, despite the fact that we yell at people at airline counters, right? Uh, we, we, we go out of our way. We're more adventurous at, in our traveling lives than we are in our home lives, right? But what happens is, is we experience things when we're traveling, and then when we arrive home, we, we import those new tools with us. Some of them disappear. Some of them stick. So every time we go and come back and go and come back, we actually grow as human beings. It's why people who travel a lot um, are some of my favorite human beings in the world because we develop a, a deep appreciation for other cultures and a, a great globalist perspective. And we are able to practice cultural empathy in a way that other people can't. But I would encourage folks to remember, it's about the people. Spend time with people in the other cultures. People, you know, often thought one of my old shows was about, was about a fat white guy that goes around the world and eats bugs. Uh, that's great. If that was what folks wanted to take from that, God bless them. They needed the entertainment. That's super. Other people understood it was a show about preaching patience, tolerance, and understanding in a world that was really defining itself by our differences rather than our commonalities. And I was really upset about that. But an even smaller group understood that what we're really getting at in Bizarre Foods was that that person who was sitting across from me doing everything in their life in a way that was completely uh, juxtaposed to me and my lifestyle, I actually had as much in common with as anyone because we were both dads, for example, and we both cared about our families and we both loved our children. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, we have to remember when we're traveling, all those shadows that are out there are other people. Those shadows are other people and we have to respect them and sprinkle them with dignity and respect. And I think the more we spread that message to other people, the better. Yeah, I'm always fascinated. Uh, when you're traveling, like, it's amazing how much all of those things fascinate you and how the things that we get excited about while overseas are the same things we ignore at home. So what you just talked about with someone who was a dad, uh, tends to, you know, people tend to just get bored at if the person across the street is a dad. Um, so, you know, travel is all about immersing yourself in, uh, you know, serendipity and pushing the limits of your comfort yeah. zone. But, you know, home life tends to be filled with habits and is optimized for efficient routines and Amazon Prime. Uh, so what are some of and those work and all the, yeah, I mean, look, work, I mean, yeah. it, it, it's, we come home and it's home for a reason, but that's why, you know, I mean, again, this group gets it. 
that's why we put a premium on travel. That's why we save up our shekels and make sure that we take that one or two trips every year because we understand its value to us. Yeah, that is, uh, <clears throat> it's one of the reasons I hate the term, uh, you know, travel like a local. Like, while I get the perspective of immersing yourself, if you really want to travel like a local, you should just go get a job, feed your family, have dinner, go to sleep, <laughs> do it all it's, over again. It's interesting. It's interesting, though. I, I, I tried to produce a show like that for someone once, and it just, it wasn't taking, it wasn't really dirty jobs goes abroad, but it was basically about someone who takes jobs everywhere and works their way around the, the planet. Um, timing is everything with selling television shows. My production company, it's, it's, you know, we're, we're always looking for the new, but it was, that's really what we were so fascinated by. Um, when I travel uh, with uh, friends and family and stuff like that, uh, for business, I like staying in fancy hotels. When I travel for vacation, uh, I mean, because I, I, I happen to love fancy hotels. I just, I just do. Uh, when I travel for, like, really travel, take my son somewhere, go for two weeks, I rent a house. We actually live wherever we are. So I can intersect with more people. And that's the goal of it all. Um, the last time that I was in uh, Italy, uh, we were just there for a week living. That's all we did. Didn't go to a didn't do, didn't do jack shit. Just went and shopped and ate. And we made sure that we always cooked one meal at home. Well, two meals at home because breakfast we always took in. Uh, but it was, uh, we ate out once a day. We walked around. We just lived there. Went to bookstores, went to clothing stores, went to toy stores. If we walked by uh, a cultural attraction, if we felt like checking it out, we checked it out. Uh, but mostly it was just living there. Best, best trip we ever had. So I've found you to be one of the most knowledgeable and intentional travelers. So how do you plan for trips? I'm sorry. Did you say one of? <laughs> I like I'm just kidding. I'm just busting your balls. Uh, what was the, what was the question? I was so no, focused I, on it, my joke. Yeah. No, it was a good joke. I apologize to everyone. It was a good joke. No, I, I feel like when you go to a place like, you know, so much about the food, the history, the culture, the people, and now, a lot of your education comes from actually just talking to people, but it seems like there's a lot of stuff you know ahead of time. How do you plan? If you're going somewhere new, how do you prepare for that trip? I devour everything that I can about it. Uh, fiction, nonfiction. People say, oh, you must grab the, 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 you know, the Fodor's guide or whatever. I'm like, I, I can't remember the last time uh, I, I ever picked up a guidebook. Um, I, uh, I go online, I research like crazy. I'll send a letter to someone fascinating. Like uh, there was a movie critic in Singapore that just wrote the funniest movie. I stumbled upon it, wrote the funniest movie reviews. I sent him a note and I, you know, where do you go? What, you know, what hawker centers do you like to go to? The guy was shocked. He goes, I'm a movie critic. I go, no, but I like you. You're funny, you're good. I want to know where you eat. Uh, I, I read a lot of fiction about a place. I mean, that's a really, really fascinating way. You know, read two or three books that take place in the country or city that you're going to is a marvelous way to understand uh, a, a given culture or place. Um, nowadays with social media, um, I'll actually start exploring hashtags uh, with it. Uh, easier for me on my laptop than on my phone. And I'll zero in on food critics, food writers, but mostly chefs, farmers, food personalities, writers, stuff like that, uh, food columnists at, you know, magazines in Venezuela. And then I follow them and I'll actually go on their timelines and just scroll through like a month of their posts and take notes. And then I do the same thing with other people. I put them in columns and then you can literally see, you can play that game like, uh, that you see old ladies do in, in, uh, and, and grandpas and where it's like the word search, yep. thing, your mind sees like the same thing pops up everywhere and you can then go investigate that. So I, I love that kind of, that kind of thing. The, the other thing that I try to do is when I go somewhere, I try to, I try to pretend like I'm hunting deer. I get real still, I get real quiet. 
uh, uh, actually a videographer friend taught me this and I just stand on a corner for an hour. And I know this sounds so dumb, but this one videographer used to get the best B-roll shots of people going in slow motion in their cars and just looking at him right into the camera, a woman holding a baby, a dog barking, you know, the, the, just the most beautiful little vignettes of a city scene. And I, and I asked him, I said, how do you get all that stuff? And he goes, I just disappear from you guys. I just go find a street corner and I just let the camera go. And I don't even look through the view. I just let it go. And occasionally I'll look through and move it to something that I find interesting. He said, but I, 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 just, I just get relaxed and I just experience everything around me. And I realized that's what I did when I was looking for, for new restaurants and stuff. Like you go to, you're in a neighborhood and you, you know, I, I did this most recently in one of Toronto's five fantastic Chinatowns. Uh, and there were like 10 restaurants on the street, any one of which I'm sure served great food. But I just watched, I just stood there and watched who was going in and out and I determined by the look of the crowds and the turnover and the, the happiness going in and most importantly, the happiness going out, that that was the place I wanted to go. And then I just walked in and did a lap around the dining room. The employees were happy, the food smelled great and the customers were happy. There was just happiness everywhere. And that's where we ate. My friend said, how'd you pick this place? And I said, I picked it because I just got quiet enough to tap in that this was the happiest restaurant on the street. One of my biggest pet peeves is someone who's standing in that same position, just looking at their phone, trying to get reviews on, you know, a Yelp or TripAdvisor, 100%. You can, you can tell so much by just looking and observing. Yep. So we're ha we have a ton of Q&A, it seems like it's blowing up in, in the chat. So I want to get to that. But I do want to ask you one, one final question. Sure. And, you know, travel is all about getting outside your comfort zone. But you, as someone who travels two-thirds of the year sitting at home has to be extremely outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, so how it's driving are you, me crazy. What it's are you doing me. to travel from home right now? Uh, I'm trying to do a lot of reading. Uh, I'm spending about 17 hours a day working on social justice causes. Um, I'm a part of four or five different groups trying to do all kinds of things from, you know, uh, solving food insecurity issues here in Minnesota where I live uh, to uh, being a very active member of the IRC, one of the founding members of the Independent Restaurant Coalition, uh, trying to affect policy and change everywhere that I can, uh, trying to do as much of this stuff as I can, because I really believe this is our time to be talking and communicating to each other. Let's take advantage of that. Um, but yeah, it's kind of driving me crazy. Yeah, we talk, we talk about, I mean, the reason we started this travel from home movement is we realized that you know, while we must all do our part to self-isolate, the reasons we love travel, connecting with people from different cultures, opening our minds, opening our palates, stepping outside of our comfort zone, we can do that virtually. It might not be completely the same. Oh, yeah. But so much of it can be done. I mean, I, I also should say that I'm a really shitty, uh, well, I'm a really good distancer, but I do it differently. I come in, this is my office, this is my room in my office, but I come to this like massive 12,000 square foot space, my my production company is through there. We have, you know, big hallways going all the way down to our kitchen studio, which is down at the other end of the hallway that we use to shoot a lot of stuff in. You know, I've got my conference room and I just, I, with a big whiteboard so I can come up with ideas that no one else will read. I mean, it just, it's crazy. And I do all this stuff because I'm bored. So I just, I come to my office in the day and I sit on calls and make notes and dream dreams and try to figure out what I want to do when this is all over. Well, also thank you for the virtual tour of the office. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to, to it's the good. other. The best part, the best part is before you give it over to Andy, there's a giant picture of me and a chicken. <laughs> Love it. Um, well, Hey, before I turn it over, um, I do, I just want to acknowledge you and thank you for the work that you do. You have, open so many minds and palettes around the world. And you, you've always used food as a gateway to people and in cult and culture. And in doing so, you've made the world a more curious, compassionate and connected place. And what you're doing right now to address some of the political and social issues is uh, perhaps even more important or just as important. So thank you for that. And thank you for spending your evening with us. Thank you. I appreciate the kind words. All right, so we're going to dive into the Q&A, and I'm going to skip the queue because I have a pressing question. Um, 
where does one buy a print of the picture with you and the chicken? It, it was a gift from the photographer. I actually, uh, we won a big award last year. That was the uh, cropped. That was the photo in a food magazine that did a story about me and this ch and chicken. I love chicken. And basically it was like everything about a chicken, how to raise them, how to butcher them, 15 recipes all about chicken. Um, and uh, we did this photo for the thing and it ended up winning some big award for sort of like, you know, best article with recipes at some big magazine thing. Uh, and when we won, the photographer gave me that. The chicken's name is Strawberry. Strawberry is no longer alive, but I did not eat strawberry. All right. Well, now, now, now that we have it on, on the record. Uh, all right. So here's the, here's the top question that came through. And I um, just think about my own cooking. Like now all of a sudden there's this insane attention uh, to food waste in the home. Like if I have an extra quarter lemon, I squeeze it into Tupperware because I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get another lemon. Um, so one of the questions that came through was, we all have scraps of, you know, whatever in the fridge and freezer. What's like one of the best kind of scrap meals anybody can, you know, put together in their own home or in their own kitchen? Oh my gosh, I love this. Uh, the big one for me, I'll just, I'll, I'll go by category. Uh, with vegetables and stuff, I do blend, what I call blended salads. Everyone loves gazpacho. Who gives a shit if you have tomatoes? Use the same seasoning thing. Throw all your veg, onion, carrot, everything. Hit it in a Vitamix. Don't juice it because if you juice it, you wind up with a lot of added sugars. It's like main line. It's very unhealthy for you. Um, but puree it and season it. Just have a cold, raw vegetable smoothie that you season with olive oil and lemon and basil and you know a little bit of chili. And you're just going to, and cherry wine vinegar. And you're going to just, you're going to thank me forever. Um, I take all of uh, my bones. I, you know, I've got, you know, chicken bones and beef bones in the freezer for stocks and things like that. Um, the blended salad, because it's, it's the stuff that seems to get rotten the fastest, I think is the best piece of advice I could give you. Oh, and the other thing is, uh, for a lot of people, I happen to be a big cheese lover. Uh, and so I wind up, you know, you eat some cheese and then you, there's like a two or three ounce chunk at the end of whatever it is. And it goes in a Ziploc bag and before it ammoniates in the thing, I throw it in the freezer. So I wind up with bags that have like little golf ball sized nubbins of 10 different cheeses. Don't make a four cheese sauce for pasta. Make a 10 cheese sauce or a 10 cheese mac and cheese. Just do something with pasta with all that cheese. So on the, on the liquid salad piece, I actually think one really interesting that's come from all of this is lots of restaurants now playing sort of the de facto role of CSA in the community mm -hmm. uh, and being able to use their supply chain. And actually that's a real problem that I'll use because I buy a bundle of stuff and we get more than we can possibly eat. So I'm going liquid salad and that's the hashtag that's gonna blow up next. Uh, here's a, here, here's a, a good question. I'm gonna try to balance between food to some societal issues and-, sure. and um, one of the questions I think is on really everybody's mind is how do we protect the, the regional food culture during this? And, you know, you talked about how the major chains are the ones that are getting, you know, their bailouts and PPP money, but the things that we care about that are the fabric of the community and the things that we identify with is our food and, and our cuisine. How does an individual person right now help protect that character and that identity? You said that a lot of restaurants are going to go under just by right now, the force of gravity. Um, how do we make sure that the culture doesn't go with, you know, individual places closing shop? Well, that's why we need to protect that neighborhood pizza parlor. That's why we need to protect that neighborhood dumpling store, that neighborhood ramen shop. It's all of those places that are of a culture and of a neighborhood that are, are going to disappear first. Um, I was on a call uh, with a very famous restaurateur from Seattle and uh, he's had to close all his restaurants. He got denied some PPP. I mean, he's just, he had a really shitty day. And he was coming out of the, I guess, his bank this morning that's in his neighborhood. And uh, he bumped into the lady who owns the, uh, you know, diner where he has breakfast a couple mornings every week. And she started complaining about her problems and started crying. And he realized how lucky he was you know, he has, you know, he went out and got investors to invest in his restaurant and he has positive newspaper reviews and he 
cop to the fact on the call. He said, you know, I realized at that point, I'm going to be fine. What I do is going to change. He said, but you know, 10 years ago, I didn't have any of the stuff that I'd built over the last decade. He said, but if that lady goes away, everyone is in mourning. If my restaurant goes under, people are going to be upset and they're going to, you know, I'm going to bump into people at cocktail parties for the next year and they're going to tell me how sad it was. He said, but there'll be another restaurant like mine with chef-driven food that takes its place, you know, with arty, frou-frou food. He said, but we're not going to replace that lady's, you know, buckwheat buttermilk pancakes and the farmer that she's gotten her bacon from that only, you know, slaughters hogs and smokes bacon for her. You know, I mean, that's the stuff, right? So not only do we have to support them, and we can literally do that with our dollars if you're so disposed, right? That's sort of immediate hand-to-hand -hand charity. But that's why it's important, so crucially, to look at the laws that are preventing those people from accessing the cash equity that's needed to survive. I think that's so crucial. I'm not saying it's a good thing about our society, but it has become all about the money. And so if we can do stuff to lobby Washington to make sure that, you know, that lady and her diner are taken care of, I think we'll be okay. Yeah. And that's why we have to support those folks. The food stuff issue, I mean, this is why everyone says, you know, think nationally, but act locally, right? I mean, if you're in Kentucky, I'd be worried about Kentucky, you know, Kentucky hams, you know, and you know, small bourbon companies and stuff like that. And I think we're realizing uh, because we can't travel and go out, you know, I can't order uh, farm boxes from California because they won't arrive in time. But I am buying farm boxes from the three or four state area around me because they can be guaranteed for next day shipment, right? And so here in the Midwest, that's about as local as I can get right now. The growing season in Minnesota hasn't started, but I would look down in your feet, see where you're planted and start fertilizing that soil. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that before I go to the next question, even too, that, you know, my wife and I've just been talking about is with so many of these restaurants shutting their doors, you know, they're, they're funded by true kind of middle-class investment. Like the people that are opening the restaurant, it's not from big investors. It's from their brother or their neighbor or their cousin. We're putting, you know, their small, but, you know, really hard-earned wages into it. And, you know, beyond it closing, there's, there's important wealth that goes with that that I think really needs to be preserved. That's exactly right. And especially restaurants that are uh, open in the last four or five years, very few. I'm talking about, like, very few. The top half percent are funded by people going to a couple people in Wall Street, Right. Um, and, you know, getting two guys each put in a million dollars and they open up their dream restaurant. Mostly it's like my brother-in-law and this guy and that guy and 20 people all buying a share and all the rest of that. And so it really is a community efforting. Uh, I saw the questions uh, scrolling by and someone said, where am I getting my from? I'm actually buying boxes uh, from uh, Lee Jones at uh, the Chef's Garden uh, in, uh, in Ohio. Um, you can Google, you know, Farmer Lee and the chef's garden and buy boxes from him. He'll, he'll ship anywhere in the country, but I'm jealous of my chef friends who are in other cities where you, Arcadia Farms, one of my favorite farms, uh, in the country is in the DC area. So, uh, if you're there, support Arcadia Farms. Yep. We, we certainly know them. Um, all right. Last, uh, last question that actually comes from your, uh, your fellow Minnesotan by the name of Rob Monson. Um, are there, you know, in your opinion, any hidden gems still in the, in the culinary world? Like, you know, Thai has come onto the scene and now even DC has multiple Lao restaurants. Um, are there anything that you think people do not yet really are aware of or appreciate? Um, and in five years from now, they'll be able to see, you know, that new restaurant uh, with that new cuisine that they've never experienced. Uh, people should understand that a year from now, the sugar-free Kazakh desserts of the high steps are going to be the next big thing. You, you heard it here first. Um, no, you know, it was, one of the things that happened over the last 10 years when the food world blew up even bigger than we ever thought it would is that, you know, people went out and exploited just about every single culture's food. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, they just like we were traveling, chefs would go away for a month to far flung parts corners of the world and come back and start cooking the food. Um, I, I still think that 
there's a lot of undiscovered stuff, especially as we move into this new era of uh, public dining, where I think we're going to have smaller, much smaller restaurants with much smaller menus, three, four, five items, and a fewer number of seats, 12, 14, 15, because it's a controllable economic model, right? You and Conrad and I could open that restaurant tomorrow with the money in our pocketbooks and our credit cards, right? And have a 15 seat ramen shop. We could, we could have that open in a week if there was an all clear whistle blown, right? And we could do it on a street corner if we wanted to, right? I mean, that's, that's what's going on in all those countries we travel to, right? Street food. Um, so I think there's, I think things are going to change. I think things, I think that those kind of restaurants are going to be explored. Um, one of the ones that I'm actually really excited about, uh, about 10 years ago, I went to Croatia. Two years later, I went back and we made one of my favorite episodes of Bizarre Foods, our Croatia episode. Um, and I remarked in the show, I said, this is like the food that you dreamed of eating in Italy. Fewer people, I mean, it's just, you know, 50 kilometers across the sea is, you know, Italy. I mean, you know, before there were lines drawn on a map, I mean, they have pasta and fish and, you know, Croatian food is just wonderful, especially on the coasts and very much resembles the food 50 kilometers across the sea on the western, eastern coast of Italy. And uh, Joe Flam, who was the chef at Spiaggi in Chicago, is now opening up a Croatian restaurant. And every time I see him, I give him a big hug and tell him he's my hero because he's gone out there and found something that other people just weren't doing, right? Eastern European cuisine, Hungarian, Czech, which was so popular when I was younger growing up in New York, I think is gonna have a, a rebirth, a renaissance. Um, I think that's a, that's a place we're gonna see a lot of cool new ideas coming from is that part of the world. Um, I also think the stands, the food of Central Asia is remarkable. And I'll put up the farmer's markets in season in everywhere from Soviet Georgia to Azerbaijan to Turkmenistan against any farmer's markets on planet Earth. They are remarkable. And the level of sophistication with cooking is superb. Um, and the other thing that I think is really fascinating, we love European cuisines. At some point, Portugal is going to have its moment in the sun. The books are there. We have a couple of the chefs. Portuguese food is so unique and so marvelous. Uh, I, I think that of the European cuisines, that's the one that's going to blow up next. That's awesome. Uh, I think I speak for everybody. I, I could listen to you talk about this for days. Um, and this was, this was absolutely awesome. So for everybody here, um, just an endless thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, the joke that I keep using that doesn't get any funnier, but I can't hear anybody boo me because of the Zoom setup is you could be anywhere in your house, but you chose to be here with us. Um, so thank you, thank you. And I'm and I'm not wearing pants. And you're, you know, the beauty of that is we can only see <laughs> you from like the shoulder up, and it's a new liberating. Time. I actually I have a crop top. I took a scissor to this thing and flash danced the shit what? out of it right before we went live. We know because you took us on the tour. Oh, did you see the reflection <laughs> in the mirror? Shit. <laughs> Andrew, this was, this was great. Uh, thank you again. Uh, a quick message to everybody that's still here watching for us. Two, two things for you. Uh, one, uh, this whole travel from home community, this is made by volunteers and our whole mission is to try to spread connection, joy, entertainment, um, and inspiration around the world, you know, while we're all stuck within our four walls. Um, the one thing we ask at the end of every one of these events, if you look right now in your chat, I have a 90 second survey for us, and this helps us figure out what do we do next? Um, and we have tons of ideas and, and wanna keep bringing you the things that are gonna keep you inspired. So we absolutely appreciate that. And then one more thing for you is Conrad and I will be hanging out after this. Um, there's a link right now to another Zoom. If you wanna chat with us about food, travel, COVID, anything on your mind, we'll be there. Uh, and if you register, that's in your inbox as well. Um, Again, yeah. and, and anyone who's interested in any of my stuff, andrewzimmern.com is your one-stop shop for all things Andrew Zimmern. Uh, and that includes the, the chicken print, yes or no? We uh, hi. Well, uh, we let you go work on the licensing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, everyone who's not already, follow Andrew Zimmern on Twitter, now you're Chef AZ on Instagram. 
Thank you. It's a, I'm a pretty good Instagram follower. You are. You are. People it's... say I get too political on Twitter, but Instagram, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty uh, uh, agnostic to everything. You know, I will say not only are you a pretty good Instagrammer, I'll give you the proper credit as opposed to Conrad, the best. Oh, <laughs> Andy. <laughs> Number one that we have of anyone. See you later. Bye-bye. Thanks, Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you.